It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is about the senseless death of Reginald Gordon West, an innocent man in the wrong place at the wrong time for a very innocent reason. Oddly, he never saw his killers, he never heard his killers, and stranger still, he would never meet his killers. Murder Mile is researched used in the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 60, Reginald Gordon West, The Birthday Party and the Spent Penny. Today, I'm standing on Lyle Street, WC2, one street east of the Latin Quarter nightclub, where the murder of David Knight led to a mafia hit on Alfredo Zomparelli, two streets south of the Piccadilly Hotel, where the first bungled assassination on Russian spy Alexander Litvinenko irradiated an entire room, and a few doors down from the infamous Rosendale murder, coming soon to Murder Mile. Lyle Street is a thin pedestrianised road wedged between Shaftesbury Avenue and Leicester Square, with the north side being a mix of oriental eateries, noisy gay bars and discreet brothels, and the south side little more than a featureless wall, being the back end of such cultural delights as the Hippodrome, Warner Cinema and M&M World. Rarely bathed in sunlight, Lyle Street is dark and shadowy, a seedy side street slathered in gloom and menace. Illuminated by the fizz of tacky neon signs, echoing with the deafening clatter of cobblestones, and dripping in the beery stench of frothy urine. As a drunk expels his pee just two feet from a portaloo, only to exclaim, Yeah, fuck's sake, 
having tripped over one of 50 bin bags or slipped in yet another dog shit. Today, Lyle Street is home to the Beijing Dumpling, a tasty little dumpling house set in a thin, four-story brownstone building on a long curved terrace, with a small restaurant on the ground floor and a side door to the flats above. It's warm, friendly, and the food's good. But if you breathe deeply, there may be an odd smell you can't quite put your finger on. As it was here, on Monday the 25th of April 1966, on the second floor of 23 Lyle Street, where the life of Reginald Gordon West would end at the hands of three killers, none of whom he would ever meet. On Tuesday the 26th of April 1966, 49-year-old George Ellerington West entered a vague red brick building at number 65 Horse Ferry Road, two miles south of Soho. Being blonde, thin and medium build, although he spoke well and held himself with a middle-class decorum, George's eyes were etched with shock, sadness and dread for what he was about to see. As this was Westminster Coroner's Court, where death inquests are held, and in a mortuary below, where the bodies are laid. Being stark, clean and cold, the softly spoken voices of George, Dr. Tear, and Detective Superintendent Walker echoed across the steel fridges and the white tiled walls of the morgue, with an eerie reverb. As DS Walker asked, George, do you recognize any of these personal effects? Any of these personal effects? On a small side table, Several strangely familiar items were laid out like a bad jumble sale. A shoe, a hanky, two pens, a pair of spectacles and a watch. Except everything was black and sooty, broken and snapped. Several tiny fragments of a life destroyed. Seeing a charred, size 8, hand-stitched shoe, two shattered pieces of horn-rimmed glasses and a white metal wristwatch. The glass smashed, the face black, and the warped hands forever trapped at 7.35pm. The police knew who they belonged to, as inside the victim's pocket, between his burned jacket, his scorched shirt, and his seared flesh, lay a brown leather wallet. The contents barely legible, but unmistakable. As except for four one-pound notes and ten shillings, they found a membership card to the Pen and Wig Club, a signed cheque for £25, a parking permit for Somerset House, and four Inland Revenue payslips, all in the name of Mr R. G. West. But given their state, George said, They look familiar, but I can't be certain. I'm sorry. All the while, his eyes darted towards the gurney, as on top lay a thick white shroud, draped over a life-sized lump. D.S. Walker asked, Ready, George? He nodded. Not ready, but knowing that with no other next of kin, this job was down to him. And as Dr. Tear pulled down the shroud to the neck, now he could see the face, 
only there was no face, no features. This wasn't human, it was an outline. A silhouette of a person Gordon once loved, who was alive yesterday and dead today. His once pale skin scorched charcoal black and oddly smooth. His new cologne, like burnt plastics and pig fat, and his soft blonde hair, now singed and shriveled. As before him lay an unrecognizable shadow, with no lips, no lashes, and no eyes. George couldn't connect the two, this silent blackened corpse and his big brother. And as George stood over his brother's charred remains, the morgue was tinged with an eerie silence, as two strikingly similar men, same height, weight, and size, were face to face for the final time. Only, like a photograph and its negative, one was blonde and alive, and the other was black and dead. D.S. Walker asked, George, I know this is hard, but is this Reginald? And with tears of both sorrow and frustration, George replied, I don't know if that's my brother. I just can't tell. Reginald Gordon West died a truly horrifying death, having been burned alive. And although this was unequivocally proved to be him, one question still stood. Who had killed him, and why? The morning of Monday the 25th of April 1966 was dry and clear as a light northeasterly wind whipped up the dust and litter up off the streets. And being three degrees hotter than the monthly average, unusually it had rained very little. You may ask why a weather report is so important to the case, but it is. At 9.30am, three young men, Roger, Robert and David, excitedly hopped onto the Bakerloo tube line at Kilburn Park in North London and headed nine stops south to Piccadilly Circus. Their spirits were high, their banter was jovial, and their mood was fun. And for good reason. Being a workday, although they each earned an honest living as a cabinet maker, a musician, and a sales clerk, as three close friends raised a few doors apart and educated side by side, all three had taken the day off, as today, was Roger's 21st birthday. Half a mile east, having driven up from his home in Champion Hill, South London, 54-year-old Reginald Gordon West parked his car in his usual spot at Somerset House on the Strand and began his job as a civil servant for the Inland Revenue. Being a different age, class, occupation and raised in different parts of the city, Reginald had never met, spoke, or heard of either of these three lads before. But ten hours later, they would burn him alive. With their bellies full, the pubs open, and the first drink of the day calling their names, the boys began as they meant to go on. And with some cheeky banter, lewd jokes, and a smattering of naughty words, the boys had fun, and were no bother to anyone. 
Roger Hammond was born on the 25th of April 1945 as one of five children with two older sisters and two younger brothers. He lived, as he did up until his arrest, at 24 Donaldson Road in Kilburn. He was educated at Salisbury Road Secondary Modern, where he met Robert and David, and upon leaving school, he gained an apprenticeship as a cabinet maker, and he remained at that job for six years. Roger was a normal lad, a little loud, easily riled, and hot-tempered. But he had no debts, no drug issues, and no drink problem. He didn't consort with gangs, he had no criminal record, and no history of violence. Whilst in custody, being charged with murder, the police stated he was polite, helpful, and composed. And just like the other two lads, there was nothing in his life to suggest that he would become a killer. At 1pm, Reginald took his usual four-minute stroll west to the Pen and Wig Club, an exclusive members-only club for journalists and lawyers. For lunch, he had two glasses of wine, a small plate of cheese sandwiches, some crisps, and returned to work by 2pm. You may ask why his lunch is so important to the case, but it is. Robert Alcock was born on the 31st of May 1944. As an adopted child raised with no siblings, although his foster parents were loving and caring, living just doors apart, he regarded his brothers as Roger and David. Leaving school, Robert tried his hand as a printer, a porter and a postal clerk, but nothing held his interest like music. As a gifted musician, Robert formed a beat group called the In Crowd. He loved the job, the travel, the money, and being recently engaged, his life was good. Describing himself as a gentleman, in custody, the police corroborated this, stating that he was polite, intelligent, and cooperative. At 5pm, Reginald finished work for the Inland Revenue at Somerset House. Being a middle-aged man in a middle-class profession, he spoke well, walked tall, and dressed respectably. His smart black suit was starched, his white shirt was crisp, his handmade shoes gave a reassuring squeak, and it was all topped off with a black bowler hat. You may ask why the clothes he was wearing is so important to the case, but it is. David Hugman was born on the 26th of June 1946 in Southport, Lancashire. Like Robert, he was adopted, and being raised as an only child to two doting parents, his upbringing was happy. Leaving school, he was trained by his adoptive father as a fish merchant at Billingsgate Market, later promoted to salesman for CJ Noon Limited, where he was described as exceptionally good and completely trustworthy. And in custody, the police also stated that he was polite, cheerful and alert. And as the evening rolled on, the jokes got dirtier, the banter got bawdier and the booze flowed quicker. And although the lads were mostly moderate drinkers, having worked hard, they'd earned a day off, not just to celebrate their pal's 21st birthday, but also their lifelong friendship. Where Reginald went next, we don't know. 
Who he was with, we don't know. What he did between the hours of 5 p.m. and 7.30 p.m., we don't know. With nothing in his stomach, but a few partially digested sandwiches and some crisps, we know he hadn't eaten since lunch. And with 299 milligrams of alcohol to 100 milliliters of blood in his system, we know that during those missing two and a half hours, he drank the equivalent of 12 pints of beer, a considerable amount for an 11 stone man. Again, you may ask why what he drank is so important to the case, but it is. As all these details, the wind direction, the lack of rain, his clothes, his meals and his drink, all paint a picture of where he had been, what he had done, where he went next, and more importantly, why he ended up dead. At 6.30pm, Roger, Robert and David entered Lyle Street. They were 75 minutes away from killing Reginald West. But at no point during that day had they seen, spoken to or even met their victim. They didn't even know that he existed until almost a week later. They were not crazed killers out for revenge. They were just stupid, drunk, horny young men looking for girls. 23 Lyle Street was inconspicuous. A four-storey building set in a curved terrace with an electrical store called London Central Radio on the ground floor. With no signs, no flashing lights and no doorman, the upper floors were private flats used by sex workers and on the first floor was a clip joint. Of course, you would only know that if you'd been there before and you knew what you were looking for. But the one thing that sex establishments don't scream is exactly that. Sex. To the right of the shop, under a tatty red awning, was an open door. Egging the other on, Roger walked in first, followed by Robert and David. With torn wallpaper, a musty smell, and their feet creaking under the tinder-dry steps as a northeasterly breeze whistled up the gloomy stairs and out of a slightly ajar window set with horizontal steel bars. The boys giggled, as so far, this was about as erotic as a prison. And the floors above were no better, as under the disconcerting boing of bed springs from the second floor flats, on an isolated landing was a toilet. So cramped you could barely turn, so dirty you'd rather hover than risk infection, as with a tiny barred window screwed shut and the door's lock prone to jam, often an unfortunate punter would be trapped inside this airless cesspit, their nose violated by the stench of unflushed piss and shit, until someone heard their cries and gave the door a good shove. Only the boys would never ascend that far. The first floor was split into two rooms, an outer room, barely ten feet square and draped in tacky black velvet, faux silks, tatty lace and mildly erotic portraits of ladies in lingerie and stood by a cash tin, the club's terms and conditions and a coat rack was a woman known only as Julie, whose real name was the even less alluring moniker of Griselda. 
With the club's door locked and the boys clearly sozzled, Julie took five pounds off Roger to cover his tab. And with his pals being broke, Robert and David decided to wait outside, whilst the birthday boy entered the club and sexual heaven. Of course, with it being a little after tea time, the club was dead. With their shift having barely begun, Betty, Margaret, Sylvia, Dell, and Pauline weren't really in the mood. Unlike all clip joints, it was the oldest scam in the book. Three tatty sofas in a tiny empty room, with no alcohol, no dancing, no nudity, no sex, and charging an extortionate fee to let stupid drunk men walk in, stand about, and look dumb. After half an hour of boredom, Roger demanded his money back. But costing £2 to get in, ten shillings to be served an alcohol-free drink, and £2.10 to make small talk with a fully-dressed girl, under the terms and conditions which he had ignored, his £5 was spent. Feeling cheated, ashamed, and fleeced out of more money than he earned in a week, Roger's temper rose. Unwilling to back down, Roger and Julie argued it out. But as Roger's blood boiled, and with no doorman to boot the boozy boy out, Julie offered him half of his money back. Half. He wanted it all. Only with Sylvia exclaiming, Hey, your mates have gone up the street. Roger took half of what was his and gave chase to Robert and David. A few minutes later, Sylvia screamed, They're coming back! As storming up Lyle Street, she spied the boys, Roger playing the big man, as behind him his pals cackled like schoolgirls. Sensing trouble, Sylvia locked the club's door, and like a pre-rehearsed battle plan, the girls dashed upstairs, past a stinky toilet, crawled out of an unbarred window onto a flat roof out back, and waited in silence. One floor below, the girls heard banging, shouting and laughing, as Roger screamed, I want my money, all of it. Being terrified, the girls scraped together what little cash they had, and being the focus of his wrath, Sylvia climbed back inside and descended the stairs. But no sooner had it began than it had ended. Peeping out of the stairwell, Sylvia spotted the boys fleeing west down Lyle Street. As in the peak of a petty childish tantrum, these grown men had emptied a full bin bag of dirty rubbish onto the stairs. The police were called, but with nothing damaged or stolen, no charges were made. Still being early into their shift, Sylvia and Margaret popped next door for dinner. Sandy and Jay were regaled with the evening's excitement. And although Vivian usually didn't let non-members in, especially one so sozzled, who was clearly several pints worse for wear, being a well-dressed man in a smart suit, spectacles, hand-stitched shoes and a bowler hat, who was well-spoken and polite, she guided the blonde stranger upstairs to the club's toilet to spend a penny. 
It was just a quiet Monday evening. But the evening was far from over. At Lex Garages, three streets northwest, on the corner of Brewer Street and Lexington Street, three drunken lads, clutching a large Coleman's mustard tin, paid two shillings for half a gallon of petrol. And having grabbed another bin bag of rubbish, they stood in the doorway of 23 Lyle Street, laughing. As feeling cheated out of two pounds and ten shillings, the silly giggling lads unleashed a petty prank. They only wanted to scare the girls. They didn't want to hurt anyone. They said it was just a joke. At 7.30pm, sensing a dark acrid smoke and a soft distant crackling, Vivian peeped down to the street door to see the three lads from earlier, giggling naughtily, a new bin bag of rubbish strewn across the stairs, a sad little flame in a pile of crumpled newspapers. Before she could reprimand the pathetic little boys, Roger tipped the petrol tin onto the smouldering sack. And with a flash, a blast and a gasp, the doorway ignited and the drunken lads darted off down the street, giggling with hilarity at their hilarious jape, unaware of what they had unleashed. As the stairwell filled with thick black smoke and deadly gases, Vivian ran into the club screaming, Fire! Fire! But with their only exit blocked by a raging inferno, as before, the girls crawled out of the unbarred upstairs window onto the flat roof and shouted down to the passers-by for help. And as the searing flames licked up the wooden walls and flicked out of the shattered windows like fiery tongues, the first floor of 23 Lyle Street was enveloped in seconds. The Soho Fire Brigade were called at 7.36pm. They arrived at 7.39pm and the fire was out by 7.58pm. Fire Officer Eads said that being a mix of paper and petrol, the fire would have remained by the street door and burned itself out, causing minimal damage to just the ground floor. But with the flames being whipped up by a light northeasterly wind, as fresh oxygen whistled up towards the unbarred open window, the tinder-dry beams of the old wooden stairwell acted like a chimney flue, forcing the fire higher and faster, enveloping all four floors of the building with speed and ferocity. Thankfully, with two of the girls in a nearby restaurant and six rescued from the rooftop, miraculously, everyone inside 23 Lyle Street escaped unharmed. At least, that's what they thought. Obscured by the panic to escape, nobody heard him banging. Hidden by the thick plumes of black smoke, nobody saw him choking. And muffled by the frantic chaos on the roof, being trapped one floor below in a dirty cramped toilet, nobody heard him screaming. Being barely three feet square, on either side of the frantic man were two intensely hot walls. So hot, its paint warped and peeled as he roasted inside. Behind was a small single window, its frame screwed shut 
and its horizontal steel bars too thin to crawl through. And in front, a thick wooden door, wedged shut, its lock jammed, as beyond it an inferno raged. And inside what had become his tiny coffin, all of his life-giving air was slowly replaced by heat, flames and deadly gases. He had no way to escape. A few hours later, the charred body of 54-year-old Reginald Gordon West was found, slumped on the toilet floor. A once well-dressed man, now unrecognisable from the blackened walls. His skin scorched, his hair shriveled, and an acrid stench of seared flesh hung in the air, as the man had been burned alive. With his body so severely damaged that even his own baby brother couldn't recognise him, Reginald's identity was later confirmed by the contents of his wallet and the records of his Harley Street dentist. Believing it was little more than a harmless prank, one week later, the police issued identikit pictures of the three unknown men seen starting the fire. Seeing their faces in the papers, Roger Hammond, Robert Alcock and David Hugman handed themselves in at West End Central Police Station. They made full confessions, and all three expressed their anxiety and upset at the death of Reginald West. Being tried at Bow Street Magistrates Court, on the 3rd of June 1966, all three pleaded not guilty to murder, but guilty to manslaughter. On the 14th of July 1966, Roger and Robert were sentenced to two years, and David to 21 months, which they all served at Wormwood Scrubs Prison. With both parents dead, George buried his only brother. Reginald was a good man, quiet, polite and professional. A well-dressed and well-mannered civil servant, who after a hard day at work, went out for a few drinks, and like any normal person, felt an overwhelming urge to empty his bladder. His death was truly senseless. He was an innocent man in the wrong place at the wrong time for an innocent reason, who was caught up in a childish prank by three drunken boys who had been conned by a simple scam. He never met his killers, he never saw his killers, and he never even knew they existed. Reginald West died a horrible, painful and lonely death, burned alive inside a dirty toilet in a seedy clip joint. And all because Roger felt cheated out of two pounds and ten shillings. And Reginald was desperate to spend a penny. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget, if you're a murky miler, to stay tuned for more extra goodies after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week, which are Getting Off and I Said Goddamn. Getting Off, Getting Off.
junkie that's looking for a different perspective? Have you ever read about a famous case and wondered how it was possible that a defendant got acquitted? Are you interested in criminal justice reform? Do you often find yourself making extraordinarily inappropriate jokes while swearing like a sailor? Then the Getting Off podcast is for you. Hosted by us. Two real live criminal defense attorneys. Getting Off explains the legal reasons behind outcomes in famous trials and tackles tough topics in the world of crime and criminal justice. We use first-hand sources like trial transcripts, police reports, crime scene photographs, and appeals briefs to give you the information that the public rarely hears about when it comes to the criminal justice system. Our podcast isn't about carefully crafted musical interludes or obsessively edited narratives. Instead, it is a no-holds-barred, unedited, raw legal presentation by two lawyers that have spent over a decade each in the trenches. Previously covered cases include Casey Anthony, Michael Peterson, Jody Arias, and more. Subscribe to the Getting Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Do that to get off now. Hey, true crime listeners, check out our podcast, I Said Goddamn. We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by two besties who like to share messed up cases that make you say goddamn. Every Sunday, we try to one-up each other's story by sharing a horrific case the other has never heard of. Along the way, we splash in some wildly inappropriate jokes and colorful language. Listen every Sunday from any of your favorite podcast directories. Also, follow us on Twitter at ISGDPodcast or visit our website, ISGDPodcast.com. A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are Felicity Ellis, Eva R., David Sack, and Diane Rossiter, who will all receive handwritten thank you cards from me, as well as a little envelope full of murder mile goodies, ooh, and some patron-only ebooks, videos, and crime scene photos, all for as little as just $3 a month. Bargain. This week I'd like to do a little shout-out to Dan Horning of, pardon my pronunciation for this, Siri Morden Podden, uh, it's a Swedish podcast about true crime, and also one of the podcast writers, Eva Martinson, who I both met on a Murder Mile walk recently, and they were an absolute delight, so a big shout-out to them. And, if you've not read it already, Adam at the fabulous UK True Crime Podcast asked me to write a piece about Murder Mile for his blog. I've enclosed a link to it in the show notes. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And that is that. That's that done. Yep, 60. Lovely. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to uh, Extra Mile. It's me. Hello, Michael. Hello. How are you? You all good? Hope you're all well. That's good. It's good. How long did that take? Oh, that was a little bit quicker than I thought. Good. That's nice. Right. Uh, welcome to Extra Mile. If you've never been to Extra Mile before, obviously, this is the unscripted, unedited bit. Uh, there's no sound effects. There's no editing. Blah, blah, blah. This is just where I give you extra information about the case that you've just heard. But also, I go and open my windows and doors to let some air in because, oh, oh, because it's it's warm and it's airless and uh although it wasn't too bad today there wasn't a man with an angle grinder uh, outside making a bloody nuisance and uh it's been quite quiet so it's been easy to record this one in fact the only the only bit of fun that we had had one boat go past but i barely heard it because it had a quiet engine and the other one was the mr weeds Mr. Weeds is a man who goes out in a boat, and it's 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 weird. It's like a uh, it's like it's like he's got a conveyor belt on the front, and what he does is he gets rid of all of the the weeds on the top of the water because there's a there's a, a quite a prolific weed on the water that basically starves the water of oxygen. So he he's out today clearing all that up. Anyway, I'm going to put my tea on coffee. I'm going to have coffee today. Have I done that? That's done. Got a Bakewell tart ready for when I finish. Proper Bakewell tart. Not Mr. Kipling. Mr. Kipling's are all right, but they're, they've gone a bit small. Gone a bit tiny, they really have. So these, this is a Morrison's Bakewell tart. Just gonna switch off a light. Morrison's Bakewell tart, uh, they're, they're like twice the size. They're nice and deep. The franzi pan's good. There's enough jam in it. The icing's nice. The uh, pastry's good. And there's always a glassy cherry, which is good. So, oh, right, so we're waiting for my coffee to do. I'm going to have a coffee. Um, it's meant to be like an Irish cream coffee. It doesn't. It's, it just tastes like someone's put a bit of mint in it. Uh, and so we'll always do this. So, oh, dear, oh, out of breath. So, uh, where am I? I'm in Little Venice at the moment. I think I mentioned that last time. Little Venice, a place they call Little Venice because it has a canal. has one canal. doesn't look like Venice at all. It has two bridges. Four bridges if I'm fair. Uh, apparently they call it Little Venice. It's not really Venice at all. Uh, anyway, I'm going to move tomorrow. I'm going to move on to the east of London and go head out that way because uh, I'm going to get the, uh, the the covers for my boat fitted. So I'm going to be up nice and early so I can get to the water point before everyone else gets there. And I'm going to empty my poo tank because obviously... 
when you have a doo-doo on a boat, obviously it can't go into the canal because, uh, you know, there's wildlife in there and things like that. So it goes, either you, some boats have little cassettes. It's like a little drawer you put underneath your toilet and like once a week you have to pull it out because you can fill up one of them quick. Or like in mine, I have a, I have one that's like about, it's like a big old, big old tank that has like, uh, like 200 litre capacity or something like that. It's just a lot of poo. So tomorrow I get to go to the machine, I get like a big hose you put on, it builds up a suction and then you open it up and then you hear a and then you watch and it's unfortunately to make sure it's working that you're getting suction it has to be a clear tank. So people walking past and they look at you and they, they go, they can see all of your poo being sucked out of the boat. <laughs> but yeah there's a lot of poo I need to get rid of so anyway. All good, all good. Um, so that was Ep 60. Hope you enjoyed that. Just about to start writing episode 61, which I think uh, is a nice one. I've done done the research on that, so I think that might work. It might be a nice, simple story. Uh, and then episode 62, I'm going to do as the uh, uh, ooh, boat going past a little bit too fast. So my boat might do a little bit of a bang here. He's going way too fast, and he's got a shit engine. Listen to that. Yeah. Oh, he's just decided to slow down a bit. Oh, no, he hasn't. He's decided to crack on. He has no idea, has he? Um, so, yeah, no. So, uh, episode 62 will be the two-parter. So, the original one that I was going to start the series with. But it, it wasn't that it wasn't... It was... It wasn't it wasn't a good episode it was a really good episode it's just it's different to all the others there's no sympathetic characters in it so what i did was i focused on the investigation and how how uh there was very little evidence for the police at the start and this is it's quite an interesting one to look at when people go why aren't the police doing their job properly why can't the police solve solve the murder that happened to round here and when the police turn up and speak to the neighbours the neighbours go I'm not talking to the police it's up to you to solve it and it's like it's it's one of these kind of ones so uh, what I'm going to do episode 62 will be a two-parter so they will go out at the same time so you'll wake up in the morning and go oh hang on Michael sent two versions of the same uh, it's not it's, it's it will be episode 62a and episode 62b and they will be marked part one and part two and I'll clearly mark in them this is a two-parter for... Because sometimes people message me and they go, Whoa, what's going on? What's going on? Why are you... I've listened to this bit and there's no ending. It's like, yeah, because it says part one. For fuck's sake. Uh, anyway. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, so that will be episode 62. Uh, so they will be going out the episode that I didn't get. But, and it is a good episode. It's nice. It's, uh, it's interesting. But it's very different to the other ones. Tease up. Well, coffee's up. Oh, here we go. Oh, it looks like a sludge. It's not even thick. It's not even thick and nice. It's just, just looks like a, a brown sludge. I drink it. Don't I drink it? I got a problem with that. Oh. See, it smells nice. It just doesn't taste as nice as it smells. Anyway, it's a it's a Kenko, Kenko Irish coffee. It's not really Irish coffee. Anyway, so that will so yeah. And uh, I've got the other series coming up as well. They're looking really good. There's a nice mix in them. I'm mixing them up a little bit. There's there's some that I'd research and then some that I, I, I was unsure about and then some I've pulled out and then others I've kind of found this week. So I've got three new ones to start researching because they they. Um, there were some new stories that I found. I thought, oh, that might make for a different mix. Because you know me, I don't try... I don't want you to kind of go... Do you know, if we have a dead prostitute one week, 
I don't give you Dead Prostitute next week. And if there's like a 1940s one week, I don't give you 1940s next week. I always do like we have 1940s Dead Prostitute. Then we'll go for an assassination, and then we'll, I'll try and mix it up and move it around. And you know, so uh, so yeah, make it all nice and different. Anyway, th this case kind of came out of nowhere, really. Um, I think I was on the British newspaper archive, just just having a. Sometimes you know you. It's nice to just kind of get an idea of what's out there. And sometimes I just do a trawl. I go, murder, Soho, and just trawl and just see what crops up. And there's normally a lot of crap. But this this was just a tiny, tiny article. It really was tiny. There was really nothing about it, really. It just literally said, man burnt alive on a toilet. And I was like, that's interesting, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I thought I'd give it a go. Uh, dived in. Uh, didn't know what it was. I thought uh, by the way that one of the newspapers had written it it sounded like they were trying to get across the idea that it was a revenge attack they wanted to make it more interesting than it was but it wasn't it was this case which is which i kind of like in a way because it's no there's no killers in there there's no revenge it's two you know, a group of people who didn't know each other and it's it really is a series about it's about fate it's about you know chance there's a lot of things that could have changed if the wind was a different direction you know no one would have died if uh, I'll go into it shortly. There, there's a chance that the boys couldn't have bought petrol if uh, if uh, the boys hadn't decided to walk away and then Roger had to go and chase them. If they would have waited like about two minutes more, maybe the decision to uh, you know, give Roger back all of his money would have been decided or or if he would have just grown up and or read the bloody terms and conditions in first. This is like episode 64, sorry, 45. Do you remember with the, the the Jamaican girl who came over and she became a hostess in the nightclub and the unknown man who still isn't hasn't been found today went into the nightclub. He was charged five quid to get in. There was no sexy dancing. There was no nudie ladies. There was no alcohol. And he was charged 250 quid to get out. This is the same kind of story. Um, and, and literally with that one as well, it was like he had a chance to read the terms and conditions. They were there. It's which is The problem is that clip joints, it makes the club legal. In the fact that their terms and conditions are clearly there. They're in big letters. You've just got to spend five minutes to go, oh, there's a service charge of 250 quid. What does that mean? That means you've got to drink at least 250 quid's worth or we'll, we'll still charge you for it. It's, you know, but, but but they prey on the fact that you're going to have stupid, horny men who've had a bit to drink, who pay five quid and think they're going to go and see some boobies. Oh dear lord what's the world coming to anyway let's let's dive into some extra information uh, i was going to do normally what i do uh with the introduction you know i introduce a street then i introduce uh the victim and their early life but what i did i decided to do it in a different way with this one so what i did was i i did it from the brother's perspective george ellington west who was his brother who identified the body i thought that was a nice way in and then i introduced other elements about the victim by comparing him to the guys who killed him so that's how i did it this time but there were things that i obviously didn't include so uh obviously reginald gordon west he had one brother a george who lived in windsor who identified his body he was 54 years old civil servant as mentioned uh, he was born on the 29th of december 1911 his parents were herbert george gumbleton and christina margaret gordon so that's where you get um Reginald's middle name being Gordon was from his mum and George's first name was his father's middle name. But when they changed from Gumbleton 
to west. I don't know. I can't, wasn't able to find that out. Uh, but it's not it's not relevant for the story, so I didn't really focus too much in it. Very highly respectable family, educated. Um, if you're a Patreon, um, bah, 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 bah. if you're a Patreon supporter, I will be posting a photo, a rare photo that I found of the family. Uh, you can see exactly. It, it shows. <coughs> excuse me. It shows Reginald when he was. I think he's about he's about five or six years old, and then his brother is just a baby. In the picture is his mum and what I believe was his aunt. His father wasn't in the picture. Uh, his father came from Lambeth. Uh, obviously, as mentioned, they two had two two children. Um, they were married, and then uh, given the dates, it literally is they were married on like twenty fifth of March, nineteen eleven, and then George, uh, sorry Reginald, their son, was born. 29th of December so literally married devoutly, devoutly religious immediately had a baby uh, he was in the Royal Artillery he died 6th of November 1961 in Windsor and his wife Christina so the boy's mother died same day as well I've searched uh, this was going to be one of the stories that I put into it but I can't find any information about how they died I just know that that they died and where they've been buried but the rest of it is kind of irrelevant Ah, so uh, they moved around a little bit. Obviously, uh, the younger brother was uh, raised in Melrose in Scotland. They're both about five. I can't get this quite right. They were about five foot eight, five foot nine. Blonde, well dressed. Uh, Reginald was old fashioned, as mentioned. He wore a bowler hat. Obviously, this is the 1960s. He was dressed for the 1930s, 1940s, really. But um, he wore good shoes, um, handmade shoes, size eight. Fins by horns, I didn't put that in. Uh, nice brown wallet. Pretty much everything on him was uh, well to do. So that was really useful for me because I could get very little information about where Reginald came from. That kind of became the key thing. So, kind of the Pen and Wig Club, it's a members only club. Do you know, you have to be of a certain echelon of society in order to get in. They don't just let anyone in. He had a check in his wallet for £25. That's a big old summer cash. That's what did we say before five pounds was about a hundred pounds today so that's about 500 pounds in his wallet so do you know he's got a, a wallet in his pocket he uh he lived in ruskin park road in champion hill south london quite a decent part of town especially for um couldn't tell whether he was married couldn't get any details about that but he didn't seem to be married didn't seem to have kids uh but he lived in a nice place um good wristwatch and then pretty much everything about him was good the horn ring glasses were good so that was a good way in and then because his pay slips were in his wallet, I know that Somerset House was kind of inland revenue and part of the Navy for a while as well. But it, that helped me work out that he worked for the inland revenue, which is very useful. Uh, so that was nice. His clothes and everything about him gave me more information than I could have got anywhere else. Ugh, yuck. Um, so Roger James Hammond, 20, cabinet maker. These are the guys who... Um, who caused the death of uh, Reginald West. So Roger Hammond, 20, cabinet maker, uh, as mentioned, born the 25th of April 1945 in Kilburn, had no prior convictions. Uh, as mentioned, he had a couple of injuries as a child. He got Stills disease, uh, had to go to the handicap school. But, do you know, he had prob some problems as a kid, but he had, he had a relatively good life. Do you know, he managed to fight his way through it. A little bit hot-tempered. Uh, but apart from that, do you know what? He'd been in the same job for six years, which is, which is great. He'd left school. He got an apprenticeship as a cabinet maker. Um, 
And that was over in Camden. He started on about £4 a week. By the time of his arrest, he was earning about £13 a week, which is not too not too bad. And he'd been there for six years, and he was he, he enjoyed the job. Uh, single man, lived with his mum. Uh, his parents had separated. They'd divorced about a year before uh, this murder, but his dad lived around the corner, was pretty local. Uh, and he'd got uh, two older sisters and two younger brothers. Uh, what else is in there that's useful? I think I covered everything with that. They they give they give all, all these guys like a psychological profile. They sat down with them. They went through their history. They all said uh, all nice guys, no hints of mental disease, average intelligence. All of them sp- expressed regret and concern for what had happened. And even Roger said a couple of times in his in his uh, assessment, he get, he kept saying, Do you know, I really upset for what has happened and i'm not trying to excuse myself i do you know he was honest about it he said you know my actions caused this as did all the other boys as well uh so roger alcock who's the other one uh who's the musician same again good background didn't hang out with bad people uh his mum was a housewife he was adopted but his mum was a housewife his father ran uh a car and a betting uh business um he tried a couple of, as mentioned, he tries, tried a couple of uh, industries on the way in. Do you know, he just left school. This was kind of the era where, do you know, you had, you had to knuckle down and get yourself a nine-to-five nine job, clock in and clock out, and all that crap. Uh, he got uh, an apprenticeship as a compositor for a printer's in northwest london didn't really enjoy that he left it to better himself uh he worked for a tailor's for a bit he was a postal clerk uh became an apprentice cutter that was at the tailor's um he was dismissed for bad type timekeeping so not you know not particularly bad but he's just he didn't enjoy the job he had a series of vague jobs hospital porter laborer um uh, but when when he he really loved music he went to art school he set up a, a club called the the in crowd he was briefly managed for a while, and he used to play clubs mostly around North London. There was a, pl- a club called the Noriette Club in Seven Sisters Road. That was kind of his main haunt, but he would travel around a lot, and he really enjoyed it. Um, uh, he was engaged at the time, said he was, uh, enjoyed what he did. He was a gentleman. He didn't like violence. Uh, police said he was polite and cooperative in custody. He complained of depression and feeling dejected. This was whilst in custody uh, and became tearful when discussing the offence. Uh, he had a strong sense of guilt and suicidal thoughts and wished he had died instead of the innocent victim. Uh, David Hugman, the other one, he was a fish salesman. Um, they're all just very ordinary boys. There's really unremarkable stories. He got a job as a sales assistant at Montague Burton in Kilburn High Road. Didn't really enjoy that. Went into business with his dad. His dad was already a fish merchant at Billingsgate Market. Worked his way up through the echelons. I don't think it was really his thing. They said his work was satisfactory, but do you know what? It was it was paying the paying him a wage. He got through to be a trainee salesman. Uh, at another fish merchant's and was promoted to salesman and office clerk he was on about 20 pounds a week which as we've just mentioned that's not bad actually uh, and was described as exceptionally good completely trustworthy and very capable and these are all at the time of his arrest uh anything else in there that's interesting no not really yeah no all good so uh as mentioned we got the the uh possessions that were found on reginald west all became really useful but as mentioned before uh, the police couldn't just assume that because the wallet 
was on the body that the wallet belongs to the body. They can't make those leaps. It's like we could. We'd go, oh, well, the wallet was in there, so that it's Michael's wallet, so that must be the body of Michael. But police can't do that. You have to get it. You have to get exactly right. Because what about if... What about if this guy wasn't Reginald. What about if he was a mugger and Reginald had been mugged, left for dead somewhere else? Or, or you know, whatever, whatever. And they, they, this guy accidentally had been burnt to death. So it could not, might not be Reginald, but they had to check. They were pretty certain it was. But, ugh, coffee's awful. So they had all the things, all the things in his wallet, which was great. Do you know, it was inside his jacket, um, and even though it was intensely hot in there, and his flesh was searing and all that, do you know, um, a lot of that didn't get damaged. It was inside a leather wallet, and the leather actually protected a lot of the documents, which was really useful. Uh, but in there, of course, as mentioned, uh, he also had some ball points, a white handkerchief, three keys in a leather case, which they later checked uh, belonged to his flat, uh, the white metal wrist watch. Uh, with the glass bro- broken, the face was smashed, and it was it stopped exactly at seven thirty-five p.m. So that would be at the intensity of the heat of the fire when it had killed him, uh, caused his watch to stop as well. Uh, obviously, as mentioned, the the boys kind of set the fire off. It was just meant to be a prank. They ran away. They thought it was just a small fire, which could easily be put out, and that no one would be harmed. Um, even though Roger Hammond. Even though Roger Hammond had written in the club's uh, signing-in book, he'd written his name, it was an illegible scrawl. Literally, literally he'd just written Roger, and then he'd signed. So uh, the police were unable to track him down because of that. Uh, May the 1st, 1966, so that's almost a week later, the police issued identical pictures of the three men based... Because uh, don't forget, there were six ladies there who'd seen their, their, their faces, so they were able to identify. The end- identicates are pretty good. Uh, they were issued um, um, important to point out so uh, we've heard about identikit before if you don't know about identikit identikit is in the old days what they used to do was they used to sit like a victim down and go okay describe the man and you go oh he's got brown hair and big nose and you know like that and th- then you'd get lots of different people together uh, who'd seen the same person you put the uh, sketches together and based on the based on the 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 quality of the artist and the quality of the information the artist is given you could have entirely different pictures it was really random and it didn't always work so uh, it was a system that was brought in called identikit where you have very standardized pieces of of uh, it's like a, a, an earlier version of efit that they use now which is uh, do you know pieces of forehead pieces of nose pieces of ears but they're all standardized so basically someone could go no the ears are bigger the ears are a bit pointier and they just put them in so it doesn't so it makes it actually uh, a, a bit more of a formula but that way you actually get a clearer description of what these people actually look like so identikit was actually used in a case just two streets away from where we are now on lyle street uh, and just two years prior and if you listen back to that episode that's episode seven which is the identical killing in the old curiosity shop that's the one where the young lad steals a ceremonial sword worth 15 pounds so he can sell it to buy an engagement ring for his girlfriend and he kills the uh the lady who uh, um is looking after the shop there he kills her and flees and uh, this was one of those cases that was kind of interesting because if he just would have gone in there and killed the lady, um, he would have got a life sentence. If he would have just gone in there and stolen the sword, he probably would have got about five to ten years and then been released. But because he went in there 
and killed her with one of her own swords that were in the shop and then he took the sword that meant that he qualified for the death penalty uh whereas if he hadn't stolen the sword uh it just would have been a life sentence um anyway uh, uh this this case uh, just in case you're, you're wondering this is 1966 so the uh abolition of the death penalty came in in 1960/61 that's went through it went through the house of lords and then they had about um four or five years of kind of working it through so the death penalty in the united well death penalty in england and wales uh wasn't abolished until 1965 and this is 1966 so even though these boys had been found guilty of manslaughter if they had been found of murder which this wasn't they wouldn't have got the death penalty a because the death penalty had been abolished and b they hadn't stolen anything in fact it was the opposite roger felt he'd been stolen from Whoo! right oh that's a lot of breath i expelled then one thing i didn't go through in here was um um Obviously, when they went to get the petrol, uh, we got a statement here from Ernest Alfred Wells, who was the forecourt attendant employed at Lex Garages at number two Lexington Street. You've heard about Lexington Street before. That was in the episodes eight and nine, the Ginger Ray case. So she was on, oh, come on, brain work, Broadwick Street. Uh, she was the prostitute, remember the really nice one, uh, with the red hair who used to treat all the homeless kids to sweets. And that's she kind of funded feckless boyfriends as well. And she would walk from Broadwick Street to Brewer Street down Lexington Street. So that's where you've heard that before. Uh, also, uh, oh, what's that guy? The, 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 the mad Russian guy, the mad German guy who uh, uh, cut his mate's cock off. William. Oh, I think it's like episode 12 or something. Anyway, that's down there as well. But um, interestingly, uh, I go past this place all all, uh, all the time. It's on Lexington Street. It's an old garage. It's it's like a multi-story garage at the moment, but it's white and it's Art Deco. And if you go past it, it's right on Brewer Street. It's right by all the all the all the sexy lady shops. Uh, and if you walk past it, you'll see it. And it, it looks it looks really nice. They probably won't knock it down because it's really nice. But it's the Art Deco garage, and that's where the garage was. That's where they got it from. So that's literally one street west of uh, Old Compton Street, and it's uh, one street west of Peter Street, where uh, Jacqueline Birin was murdered as, as well. So that's the last week, the week before's episode. Oh dear. Anyway, uh, so yeah, they were there. That was the garage. They went there. Um, one of the exhibits in the case was exhibit nine. Uh, the evidence that was a burnt mustard can. Uh, but I didn't go into this because it slowed down the story. But on the evening, so on that evening, the twenty fifth of April, uh, Alfred Wells, Alfred Wells, the forecourt attendant, he said he, he served some boys who turned up uh, <coughs> wanting to get some petrol in a can. Um, they hadn't got any cans available because you, obviously you could buy a can and then you could fill it up with petrol. They hadn't got any available, and the young boys wanted some uh, some fuel, so they went off and they found they found a wine bottle and they turned up with it. And Alfred went, "No, I, I can't give you wine in a wine bottle." So they went away. It looks like they'd gone around some bins and stuff like that, and they managed to find a Coleman's mustard tin, so a big old mustard tin, a decent sized one. It was empty. They cleaned it out. It got a lid on it. He was happy. It was a, a metal tin with mustard on it. He sold them two shillings worth of petrol, which was roughly around half a gallon of petrol, um, and they went off and caused the death of Reginald West. Ugh. Um, 
Post-mortem was conducted by Dr. Donald Tear. He has cropped up several times in here because he was the he was uh, the <coughs> Westminster pathologist at the time. Uh, so that was on the same day. It was a Westminster mortuary. I can barely say those words. Um, body was severely damaged by fire. I will be putting a photo on the Patreon page. Uh, I will put it hidden. Uh, it's in there and you can make the decision whether you look at it or not but it was one of those photos i looked at and went where's the victim and then i went oh shit there he is um with this fire um the pathologist was unable to determine uh he definitely died of asphyxiation that was what had killed him not the flames he hadn't burnt to death but it was the asphyxiation that killed him first as with a lot of fires and then the then the fire was at uh then the fire it caused all the damage to him, but they were unable to determine whether he was conscious or unconscious at the start of the fire. So by the time the the flames had been licking up, uh, as mentioned, the body was identified by his brother. He was unable to confidently identify the body as that of his brother. He looked at a pair of gents' shoes and spectacles, which he said were similar to those of his brother. What, what his brother wore? That's not even good English. And some personal documents too. In those personal documents were obviously his payslips uh, and George's passport was there as well. Um, they could see his name and his picture on there, but still they couldn't use that as absolute hard evidence. You have to have someone to come in and go, I, ident I identify that body. Uh, what they did was they uh, managed to find his dentist, who was Edward McKin Sycamore at num number, number 113 Harley Street. Told me a lot about who... Uh, reginald was if he had a um obviously harley street is where all the posh doctors are well we say posh doctors at the moment it's really most of it is really just kind of people renting out places and uh conning people into believing that they're good respectable amazing doctors simply because they're on harley street because everyone goes oh it's a harley street doctor and they don't realize that literally anyone can rent a place with enough money on harley street it's a it's a con there are some good doctors on there though anyway he was at 113 harley street uh, uh reginald had been his patient since 1955 so that was 11 years um he examined the badly burned body at westminster mortuary i'm sure that most dentists it's something that they don't think they're ever going to have to do he saw the dental work and he was able to confirm that that was reginald west that's how they proved it was him uh as mentioned the trial was held at bow street magistrates court on the 3rd of june 1966 uh hammond and hugman through their solicitor pleaded not guilty and they obviously they reserved their right for defense uh and ulcock through his solicitor as well said i have nothing to say at this stage they were all granted legal aid which means uh that the state paid for their legal costs one thing that was part of the case that i didn't go into because it's just really dull to be honest um mrs r cohen who uh, ran london central radio and electrical stores on the ground floor of 23 last street obviously she lost loads of business uh because of the because the building caught fire and, and her shop caught fire as well it was loads of papers about it i couldn't be asked to read them i was like i had a flick through and i was like meh boring um 14th of july they were all sentenced all charged with manslaughter all served at wormwood scrubs uh, I don't. Um, originally, uh, Ulcock and Hammond, so Roger and Robert, originally uh, were sentenced to four years, but because they'd never, uh, they had no prior convictions, and they all admitted uh, guilt 
to manslaughter and were you know very helpful to the police that was reduced to two years and uh david hugmans was reduced to 21 months oh dear so that was that did you enjoy that was that good i'm out of breath now having my coffee looking for this cake is staring at me Mm, looking out i've already had one this morning can't wait i'm gonna have another so that was that that was episode 60 hope you enjoyed that i am heading off to the laundry now that's how exciting my life is wow before i disappear off tomorrow i was actually racing to get this episode done because it's gonna it's gonna piddle down with rain shortly and because i'm in because the roof of the boat is steel like if you get a tiny bit of rain it goes and if the rain's really heavy you can't hear anything which is nice do you know when you're lying in bed i love that sometimes you're lying in bed and it's it's nice and peaceful and there's a gentle rocking of the boat as you kind of go into sleep and when it starts to rain you can hear it it's really nice uh but it's not good when you're trying to write an episode or trying to record an episode so that's done that's good i'm going to edit this today i'm going to finish editing it tomorrow it normally takes about three days to edit because uh, they're pretty complicated edits but hopefully you enjoy them hopefully uh, you can hear all all of the sounds in there i was just going to say you you can listen to this however you want really but um some people did message me and say um some people um someone did message me and say oh i didn't realize that there was a soundtrack in the background and when i quizzed them about it i realized that they were actually listening to it um like I, I record this with inner ear earphones, um, and the the sound is is deliberately meant to be subtle. I don't like it to be too heavy. So you know, there's music in there, but there's also sound effects as well. And if you hear all that, great. But if if you're listening to it, like on a oh, what's it called, like a a, 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 a hands free speaker or something like that, I'm 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 not hip. I'm not with the kids. I don't understand. You might not hear all the noises if you've got a mono speaker. You might hit might not hear it as well. Or do you know? So it doesn't you don't have to listen to it with good earphones but just to say if you do listen to it with inner earphones you'll probably hear more sounds the more in there than uh than anyone else will hear and there's little things that i deliberately put in like sometimes i spend hours like really tweaking little different sounds there were some that i put in the last couple of episodes that i really i can't explain them to you because it's like i'm i don't know what i'm gonna how i'm gonna edit this episode so i can't explain how you know but there are things that i put in there that are really good fun that i i enjoy editing and i, I sit there going oh i hope everyone hears that but i know that most people won't but um if you want to uh, if you do get a pair of in ear earphones and you want to have a listen to some of the older episodes or go back and listen to some old ones and then you'll hear some of the things that i've put in there's things that i put in there deliberately i try and make them a little bit um uh subconscious in there like like last time with the um uh, last week's episode so the daisy wallace one i set up in advance so you knew where you were by the sound because you'd hear You'd hear the the phone ringing, you'd hear the typewriter, you'd hear the sewing machine, you'd see hear the tailor sounds, and they're all in there, <coughs> and the rumble of the 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 tube train. So you knew you were in Hoban, um, but what I started doing, I started tweaking with the sounds later on. So the nearer we get to a murder, sometimes, you know, uh, like the the phone ringing is is reversed. So I deliberately throw things in to make it to throw things slightly off key just a little bit. So, you, so hopefully, whether you hear it or not, or whether you consciously hear it, hopefully your brain hears it and, you, and it goes, oh, something's going wrong there. 
or with the with the Jacqueline Bivy one. Do you know, I had a lot of fun using the different sounds in there. And uh, there's one bit that I really liked. I put it in at the last minute, and it's and it's where at the start when uh, I can't remember the name of the guy where he meets Jacqueline Beery and she goes to take the other pound note off him and she goes is that for me like that uh, and I didn't like it when I recorded it I thought oh I don't like the way I've done that voice I might have to change that but I tweaked with it a little bit and then I was like I started putting it in I started to doing what they pull call a pull stretch which is basically you you take a piece of sound and you um, elongate it so if it's uh, that for me, so that's barely a second. But if I can elongate that to three, five, or, or sometimes ten seconds, um, it's the same sound, but it's just it's it's longer. So it's like it's got a really drunken drawl to it. And I love that. So I put that I put that in there, and then at one key point in episode fifty-eight, I put in very quietly. Uh, Jacqueline Beery or, or me as Jacqueline Beery really going is that for me and it was at the right point I was like oh I'm really happy with that I was happy with that what just I'd thrown it in just to position it and it was really good I have to say that was a difficult e- episode to edit I don't normally talk about the edit because by the time you hear this you've already heard the full episode but I haven't started editing it yet but the Jacqueline Beery one was interesting I got halfway through it and I was like oh I don't know how to edit this it's getting complicated and I sat down and thought because obviously I have to do this based off battery power. Because I, I haven't got mains power. So I, I have to look at my battery and go, oh, shit, I've got 40% left. Right, what am I going to do? Uh, and I thought, bollocks, I'm just going to go gonzo with it. So I deliberately I found got all my sounds and I just pushed them all in. And I was like, right, what are we going to do? And I had a lot of fun with it. And it, a couple of hours later, I was like, oh, this, this sounds really good now. So, uh, so we'll see how this episode goes. I'm hoping I'll do an episode soon where it's just nice and simple. I might do that, yeah. I've got one coming up soon, which I think uh, the next week's one I'm writing will be quite simple, I think. I'm going to deliberately make it simple. Anyway, waffle over. Oh, that was, that was waffle overload, wasn't it? That was waffle with maple syrup on it and maybe some chocolate and some whipped cream and some sprinkles and some banana. Uh, God, I'm getting hungry now. Right, so I'm off to do the laundry. I'm off to wash my smalls and my new bed sheets, and oh, everything's all exciting. So, hope you enjoyed that, uh, and hope to hear from you soon. Lot to love. Oh, buy some mugs if you want to buy mugs. I've got loads of new mugs in, and everyone who buys a mug gets a, a, a Murky Miler badge. I know, very exciting. Right, that's me done. Uh, off to the laundry. Have fun. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.